Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. Great singing, church. I love to sing about God's mercy. Where would we be without it? And I'll tell you, I hope you don't take this the wrong way. I love to hear you all sing about 28 times in that song, the line, our sins are many. I can't work with a church that pretends that their sins aren't many. But if you give me a person who admits their sins are many, that's a person I can work with. And you, you don't, you've never treated me like you want a pastor who pretends that his sins aren't many. But you insist, as I do, that however many our sins are, God's mercy is more. That's great news. That is great news. We're going to open today to James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. The title is The Wisdom from Above. So if you'd open with me to James 3, verses 13 through 18, to look together at this beautiful portrait of the wisdom from above. And I want to read this text uh, reverently and slowly and understandingly. And as we prepare to read God's word, let's, uh, let's pray and ask God to help us. Oh, Lord God, right now in this moment, Make us like Mary to sit at your feet. In this moment, make us like Paul to count everything as loss. In this hour of preaching, increase our grace so that there might be more decision in our character, more vigor in our purpose. By your word, through your spirit, do this for your son's sake. Amen. James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What a deep question James begins with in verse 13. Who is wise among you? How would you answer that question? It's a deep question. How would you describe the wisdom that comes from heaven? That's a deep question. One of my favorite ancient authors is Augustine, and he asks a lot of deep questions in his writings. And in this one place, I think it's in the Confessions, Augustine says, the deepest question that you could ask me is, uh, what is time? And Augustine has this charming little paragraph in there where he says, uh, I could have explained what time is, before you asked me to explain it. 
But as soon as you ask me to put pen to paper and define what is time, I can't do it. It's interesting that here James says not a what is wisdom in an abstract way to define it with pen and paper, but if you look exactly how he frames the question, he says, who is wise and understanding among you? Because James knows that if the question is hard to answer in an abstract way, we know it when we see it. She is a person of wisdom and understanding. He is a person I count on as a person of wisdom and understanding. He knows that we know wisdom when we see it, when we experience it. It's shown in real life. Who is wise and understanding among you? And he answers the question in verses 14 through 18. At a good, strong, Bible-teaching church like ours, we would be tempted to answer the question, who is wise and understanding among you, by, by saying, the one who knows the most doctrine, the one who has the most facts marshaled in their brain. But James is all about showing the proof in life. The theme of James is living faith. He says so many times in chapter 2, don't say you have faith. Don't say you have faith. Show me the reality of your faith in the works of your life. And here in chapter 3, he says, don't say you have wisdom. Show me the reality of your wisdom by your works, by your good conduct, he says in verse 13. By your good fruits, he says in verse 17. Wisdom is proven not in arguments, not in the knowledge of facts, not in the ability to speak a sort of impressively poetic definition of wisdom. Wisdom is proven in life, in the way of living. And here he contrasts the wisdom from above with what is earthly and demonic. A friend of mine preached on this passage, and I listened to his sermon last week, uh, not to plagiarize it, but just to see what he was doing. And his title was the two wisdoms, one from above and one from below. And uh, that's a, a horrible title. It's not respectful of the careful way that James uses language here. You see, verse 15, James is thinking about what we would call a wisdom from below. But what he says in verse 15 is this, this, quote-unquote wisdom from below. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly and unspiritual and demonic. You can tell he's thinking about a wisdom that isn't from above, but notice James never calls it wisdom. He never calls it wisdom from below. It's quite brilliant, actually. It's a, like the deft touch of a poet to say something without saying the thing. It's almost as if James is meaning to say, uh, if you didn't know what you were talking about, you would call this wisdom from below, but I don't even want to grace this with the name wisdom because it's so demonic and so counterfeit. And one more thing to notice from this paragraph before we break through each of the words and what they mean is, you know the you know the best way to understand the Bible? The best way to understand the Bible is to read more of the Bible. 
we, we, we freak out to try to get all of this software and all of these encyclopedias and all these books. The best way to understand the Bible is to take into your heart more of the Bible. And I, 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 never, I, I never tire of studying to, to preach sermons to you because the more, that I, the more I read the Bible, the more beautiful and compelling every individual portion of the Bible becomes. And for my study this week as I read this, I, the, the words aren't exactly the same, but I read this paragraph as a distillation of the first narrative about the first man and the first woman. Because after all, the whole deal was a tree that would make you what? That would make you wise. Adam and Eve were offered a tree that would make them wise. Satan, in his demonic, earthly, divisive way, had them reach for that tree, and it ended up causing jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder, and every vile practice. What they got was a demonic wisdom. And then even the, the first sins committed by the first human beings or naturally born on the planet, that is Cain and Abel, takes us right there again into verse 16. It was jealousy and selfish ambition that caused Cain to commit his sin. This is like a... Uh, an extended, it's almost like Genesis is the, is the story and James kind of loops back and gives sort of the philosophical underpinnings behind it. And pastorally, this paragraph is just what the Holy Spirit would give to us here in November of a very contentious, straining year. He would give us this. He would give us this. In his goodness, he would give us this today. So let's break it up and put it back together. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. The first quality of wisdom is meekness. The meek person is the person whose mind and heart have been submitted to God. That's a simple definition, but don't miss it. The meek person is the person whose mind and heart have been submitted to God. Because the meek person is submitted to God, the meek person is guided by God, the meek person trusts God, and so there is a disposition of gentleness in the meek person's life. There's this inner disposition of gentleness. The opposite of meekness is self assertiveness. The opposite of meekness can be defined right there in verse 14 with those two words, selfish ambition. To be meek means that God's evaluation and God's approval is the only thing that I need. So I don't enviously and selfishly go scampering around and scheming for all, everything to work out the way I want it to because I'm meek. And meekness means I am content with God's allotment. I am content with God's providence. So we can frame meekness as the opposite of a selfish ambition that scampers around and tries to grab everything the way that I want it or the way that I think I need it. Let him show it in the meekness of wisdom. 
And then that contrastive, but in verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy. That word jealousy there is the word zealous, the word zeal. It has two basic senses in scripture. One is like good, a zeal for God's glory or a zeal for my neighbor's good. But the other sense, it could be translated like like it is here, uh, uh, jealousy, this self-centered zeal. And then he says, don't don't have this bitter jealousy and this selfish ambition because if you have that in your heart, if you have that in your heart, he says, this is an internal quality. If you have it in your heart, then you're boasting and you're false to the truth. Why would it be that bitter jealousy, misguided zeal, and selfish ambition would cause us to be false to the truth? Because bitter jealousy and harsh zeal Zeal is a good thing. Passion is a good thing. But given human nature, our zeal and our passion is not always for God's glory and our neighbor's good. And so we become false to the nature of the truth when we twist our zeal and we lie about our motives. We lie to ourselves and to the people around us. You know this happens all the time. I wasn't yelling in anger. I was just forcefully declaring God's righteous purposes. Well, I didn't do that because I wanted to get back at him. I just did that because God's a God of justice and I needed to settle the score in God's name. Well, when we say, well, I was zealous for what's true, but really you were just annoyed and you wanted to win an argument. I was uncompromising and I stood on my principles when really you were just being aggressively stubborn and bullheaded and defensive. Well, I wasn't being critical. I was offering constructive criticism when really you were just slicing them with an arsenic-tipped razor blade. Our pride, our selfish ambition makes us false to the truth. Verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Earthly means according to the principles of the world rather than according to the principles of the kingdom of heaven. Paul describes it in Philippians 3.19, He says these people are enemies of the cross and he says three things about them. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. All because they set their minds on earthly things. This describes us when we don't have the spirit of God. This describes the earthbound person in his or her sinfulness. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but it is earthly, it is unspiritual. That is, it is from the human flesh. And it's ultimately demonic, demonic. And what happens when things get very earthly, very unspiritual, and very demonic? Verse 16. 
disorder and every vile practice. It says in verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. God's way is the way of peace, the way of shalom, the way that the church manifests the reality of the gospel is her unity, that we are one body. But when we become earthly rather than heavenly, unspiritual and fleshly rather than spiritual and demonic rather than godly, then jealousy and selfish ambition bring disorder and every vile practice even into sometimes into the life of the church. Disorder and confusion. This demonstrates the chaotic effects of sin. That's why I think it's not a, a reach to take this all the way back to Genesis 3 and then Genesis 4, and then by the time you get to Genesis 6, the, you, you have the whole world disordered. The disorder and confusion always follow the demonic influence. James is here describing public problems and relational wreckage and disharmony in the church where the ministry of the church languishes because the members of the church are just envious and jealous toward each other. And they're not pointed upward and outward. Notice twice. Did you notice it? It's two times it's translated selfish ambition in the ESV. Verse 14, selfish ambition in your hearts. Verse 16, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist. One word would be pride, vanity, or vainglory. Could translate it selfish ambition. You know, uh, in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis has a, a fascinating little two and a half page description of selfish ambition and pride. He says there, he says there's one vice which everyone in the world loathes when they see it in someone else, but hardly anyone except spirit-filled Christians admit that they have it in themselves. And it's this, selfish ambition and pride. On that page, C.S. Lewis says something to the effect that, uh, he says, I often hear people admit that they lose their heads when it comes to drink or sex or whatever. But I so rarely hear someone admit that their life is dominated by selfish ambition and pride. And then he makes the surprising point that some other sins, uh, they almost bring people together. Drinking songs or, you know, whatever, like there's... Some fleshly sins have a way of creating a sort of counterfeit camaraderie among the sinners who commit those sins together. But not selfish ambition, not pride. It always results immediately in enmity between persons. And that's why when he sums up that passage, C.S. Lewis says something like, some of our other temptations attack our flesh and our animal nature, he calls it, but the temptation of pride is a direct line from hell to the human spirit. It's so deadly. James mentions it twice here, selfish ambition, human pride. And we do have to admit that this is our problem. And this is why we operate from the schemes below rather than the meekness of entrusting ourselves to God. 
jealousy and selfish ambition, there's disorder and every vile practice. And then verse 17, after, oh, after verses 14 and 15 and 16, oh, verse 17 is like Listerine, the good kind that burns, but you know that it's going to make you clean and make your breath less atrocious. He says in verse 17, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. He says in verse 17, the wisdom from above. This reminds us of James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Don't ever forget the description of God in James 1.5. Who is God? So many ways we could answer that question. So many ways the Bible answers that question. God is righteous. God is holy. God is creator. But James 1.5 describes God in this way. God who gives generously to all without reproach. Who is God? God is the greatest giver in the universe. Who is God? God is the one reason that anyone is able to ever give anything because God is the ultimate giver. And what he gives is the meekness of wisdom, the peaceableness of wisdom, the gentleness of wisdom, the good fruits of wisdom. Beloved, I'm telling you from the very word of God, if you want the wisdom from above, God wants it for you more than you could ever want it for yourself. And he will not give it reluctantly nor stringently. But the wisdom from above is, and he could have just said pure, because obviously that's the first in the list, but he goes out of his way to give that primary first. I think what he's doing is saying that purity is the overall defining feature of wisdom. And the seven subsequent qualities detail the dimensions of what that purity works out in cash value in real life. But purity is the overall defining feature of this wisdom here. First, he says, pure. This makes that inner quality prominent from the jump. First, in terms of importance. First, in terms of the essence of wisdom. We're kind of back to Augustine. If you, if, if you ask me what time, you know, I could kind of explain what time is, but if you made me define the essence of time, how could I do that? What is the essence of wisdom from above? The essence of it is pure. Pure. First John 3, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself. It is the purity of the Lord Jesus Christ that purifies Christians who are in Christ. So what does he mean by pure? He's not, he, if, he meant, if, he, if he only meant holy, he would have used the word holy, but he uses this special word, pure. I like kind of an old KJV translation uh, that translates this Greek word, chaste. Not chaste like some Steve McQueen movie with cars in it. Not that kind of chaste. Chaste like C, oh boy, here comes the spelling. C-H-A-S-T-E, chastity. 
We, we connote that with sexual chastity, and that's certainly, well, the wisdom from above would certainly be sexually pure. It would include that, but it's bigger than that. What is, what does it mean to be chaste? What does it mean to possess chastity? Chastity is the resolute commitment that I belong to one person and one person alone. That's chastity. I belong to one person and one person only. And beloved, that is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of wisdom is for the self to know this about the self. For the self to know this about the self. Whatever happens in life, Whatever bad stuff happens to me next month, whatever good stuff happens to me, whatever else happens in life, this I know, I belong to Jesus and Jesus only. Utter loyalty. There will be no rivalry in my heart when it comes to Jesus. He is first and only. This purity of devotion This chastity of fidelity to Jesus is what enables the wise person to be peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits and impartial and sincere. And it enables that person to sow a harvest of righteousness wherever they are. Even if they happen to live in a crazy place like the United States of America in a crazy year like 2020. Utter loyalty to God. This is also, isn't it, why the meek person is as bold as a lion? The Bible says that in a couple places. We think meek, don't think weak. The meek person is as bold as a lion because the meek person knows, I belong to God. I belong to Jesus alone. Therefore, I fear no governor. I fear no president. I fear no earthly potentate, because I belong to the king of kings. This is why Moses, in his meekness, could go toe-to-toe with Pharaoh, and it was Pharaoh who blinked, never our guy Moses. This is why, in his meekness, he has great courage. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the only deliverance from all other fears from all other fears. The wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable. Peaceableness, bringing peace, making peace, it says in verse 18, or sowing peace, being peaceable, it says in verse 17, being peaceable is the first external quality that flows from the internal reality of purity. The heavenly wisdom is always ready for peace always working toward peace, always, mo- always working to remove discord. Peace is marvelously important. It is peace with God that we have in salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ. And it is peace with one another that the New Testament epistles constantly enjoin us to. But peace is marvelously important to God. It's marvelously important to us. And we always seek it, yet we know that peace is not always achievable. It is the very purity of wisdom that causes wisdom to never make peace with the demonic, the earthly, 
the worldly, the sinful. There are some situations where it would be wrong to make peace because that would be to compromise our purity in Christ. And wisdom knows the difference. Wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable. And then this wonderful little word, gentle. What is a gentle person? A gentle person is a considerate person because they consider your feelings more than their own. You show me someone who's always obsessed with his or her own feelings, that person is incapable of compassion and gentleness. A gentle person is unwilling to demand that everything be always exactly the way that I want it. From the little things like, who took my favorite pen? From the little things like how the TV room is set up and where the drinks go and where the remote goes to the big things like, a, like big decisions that a church has to make about its future or its ministries or whatever it is. There should be a gentleness. The wisest person in the room is not the loudest person who insists that everything be exactly the way that they want it. The wisest person in the room is the person who has this wisdom of gentleness. And then I love the next word, open to reason. It's three words in the ESV translation, open to reason. Another translation translates this, a good translation, easily entreated, easily entreated, or open to reason, or persuadable, persuadable, willing to learn, a person who is open to new life, to, to new light. A person who is ready to cooperate. A person whose attitude is conciliatory and they want to make peace. They're willing to see the other side's point of view. That's what it means to be open to reason. To seek mutual understanding. Sometimes mutual agreement is not come to but we can still have mutual understanding and mutual trust, even if we still see the situation differently from one another. We can have mutual understanding and mutual trust and mutual love. You do know the difference between listening and just keeping your trap shut long enough till you can just breathe fire the next sentence, right? Big difference. If you are just listening long enough to give yourself a chance to refute the next time around, you're not listening. You're just waiting to spew. But if you really listen, if you really listen, this is what it's talking about, being open to reason, to humbly seek to understand what the other person is saying. Do you really seek to understand what the other person is saying? Sometimes in conversation, we... We think we know what the other person is saying and, we're, and we also think we know why they're saying it and what happened in their life 18 months ago to make them say this today. And we just, we just have them all written out in our mind and we're no longer listening. We're listening to our thoughts about them, but we're not listening to them. I was in, I could, I could probably say every year uh, I was in a tense board meeting or a tense meeting of, about church life. I could probably say that every year. Not like bad, like people are stabbing each other, but just tense, but people disagree. I could probably say that every year. I guarantee you I could say that a dozen times this year in a tense meeting. Are we going to do this? Are we going to wear masks? Are we going to do this? Are we going to do that? And sometimes when I'm in that meeting, 
I say, hey, hey, hey. We don't have to leave here agreeing with each other. We don't. But we do have to leave here, every one of us saying, I got to speak what was important on my heart and my brothers listened to me speak it. Sometimes that's enough. We, we may not all end up agreeing, but if we know where our disagreement is and we know where we stand in relationship to each other, then we can get through it. Um, if someone who disagrees with me knows that I really listened to them and defined respectfully our area of disagreement, we can maintain our friendship, even our comradeship in ministry. But you know that feeling when someone disagrees with you and you are sure in the bottom of your heart that they don't even understand what you were talking about. That's lethal. So the quality is to be open to reason, to really listen. And look how it's backed up, open to reason. Very next one, of course, full of mercy. The person who is full of mercy, here's another good old KJV word, is forbearing, forbearance, willing to bear with others, full of mercy. Relational patience. You say what you want about what you wish of this and that about the Bible. I'll tell you one thing I appreciate. I appreciate the Bible's utter realism. Because when the Bible talks about you in relation to other people, this is what the Bible says. Other people in your life are going to require mercy from you. Hello. That's realistic. That's realistic. Every person in your life is an opportunity for you to extend mercy because people are prickly. I appreciate the Bible's realism here. The Holy Spirit of God understands what it's like for parents who live with teenagers, husbands who live with wives, wives who live with husbands, pastors who have an insane deacon board. Not that I know anything about that. He, the Holy Spirit just knows that we need to forbear with one another. Learning to bear with one another mercifully, not resentfully, not keep, if you are keeping score, you have no mercy in your heart. Not keeping this in my pocket, well, I lost this one, but I better win the next one. That ain't mercy. Merci mercifully bearing with one another. William Barclay describes this quality like this. It is the ability to bear with people and not grow angry or irritated or annoyed with them, even when they are very foolish. It is the ability, Barclay says, it is the ability serenely to take people as they are with all their faults and all their failings and with all the ways in which they hurt and wound us and never stop caring for them and never stop bearing with them. Open to reason, full of mercy. And then he says, full of good fruits, impartial and sincere. Those last two are interesting, impartial and sincere. The person who is wise has fixed principles. He or she is steady and firm. But at the same time, they're always open to new light and they're not unnecessarily rigid and unyielding. 
They, they, they have mercy. And so they're able to be impartial. They're unbending when it comes to the grand truths of God and the gospel, but they're impartial enough that they can say, well, I, I don't have to have things my way. There's a consistency in, in fearing God that makes them consistently gracious and easy to work with. They are as accommodating as it is possible to be. Love people like that. Don't you? Who wouldn't? And then verse 18 says, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Listen, church, listen. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I, I want to, I just, I wish I could lock eyes with each one of you. Verse 18 says, those who make peace. Church, you don't have to be an elder to make peace. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to make peace. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be powerful. You don't have to be an office holder. The church will only survive if all of her normal, regular, prickly members find ways in the wisdom of Jesus Christ to make peace with one another. To make peace with one another. The best church members do this all the time and they never get credit for it. How do you get credit for being the one who behind the scenes made a blow up not happen, right? <laughs> like our special forces, the greatest things they do we'll never hear about because, you know, like the church members who refuse to tailbear, who forgive, who don't hold it against, who forbear and who make peace. The, the, these, these, <laughs> these are the, the very fuel that makes the love of the church grow warmer and warmer over time. We need this, especially in this difficult season of ministry where we're going several different directions and we're not all together yet. We need this kind of peacemaking one with another. If this is the wisdom from above, then wouldn't the ultimate question be, well, how do I get it? How does it come from above? to me. If this wisdom is so essential and so necessary and so praiseworthy, how do I get it? Well, it says in verse 15, the wisdom that comes from above. It says in verse 17, the wisdom from above. So we receive it from above. James chapter 1 Verses 17 and 18. James chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Wisdom is a gift from above. It says, of his own will, he gives us this. Wisdom is not something that I can will into my own life. Wisdom is a gift bestowed upon me by the gracious will of God. If wisdom is a gift from above, then heavenly wisdom is received, not achieved. I don't achieve it by checking all the boxes and doing all the things, though there are many things that I must do and many sins I must repent of. But heavenly wisdom is received, not achieved, and it's received from God's generosity. 
And we know this, God is the one who gives to all generously without reproach. Oh, the church banks on this. God's gifts are always according to what God designs, not what we deserve. That's gospel truth. God's gifts are always according to what God designs, not what we deserve. This is a gift of God. God's love is, God loved us so he gave. He gave his son. And then Romans 8 says, if he has given us his son, how will he not also with him freely give us all things, including the wisdom from above? So as you see your behavior and your speech characterized by verses 14 and 15 and 16, well, you need to repent. Of course you need to repent. But you can't work yourself into the, the perfect performance in your repentance is an openness to say, God, would you give me this gift of wisdom? The wisdom from above is what every page of our Advent booklet that you're picking up today is about. It came from above as a little baby born in a manger. The harvest of righteousness, he says in verse 18, is sown in peace by those who make peace. The wisdom from above came in Jesus Christ. And he sowed his body into the ground. He says, if I, if I remain and live, it's myself alone. But if I go into the ground and die, I will bear much fruit. There is a harvest of righteousness because Jesus died on the cross, was buried in the tomb, is risen again and ascended. And now that harvest of righteousness is the very presence of the spirit of Jesus in the hearts of those who have been so redeemed. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we would confess and repent of our divisiveness, of our selfish ambitions, of our misplaced zeal. And Jesus, we would receive your gift of meekness, gentleness, humility, and wisdom. Jesus, hear your children as they pray. Sovereign Spirit of God, from the bounties of the, of the ascension of the Son of God to, to the right hand of the majesty on high, pour down the blessings of wisdom in the hearts and lives of your weary and wounded saints. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.